Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the first event in our new series called Meaningful Work. The series is a collaboration between three different departments at the London School of Economics, the LSE Faith Centre, LSE Careers, and the new LSE Life, together with St. Paul's Institute from St. Paul's Cathedral. My name is Barbara Ridpath, and I am the director of St. Paul's Institute. The opening session this evening will be devoted to a discussion of finding meaning in work with an introductory address from Richard Sennett, Centennial Professor of Sociology here to my far right, and a discussion with Professor Sennett and two very active LSE alumni, Dr. Ruth Cosman and Tim Frost, both of whom have either served or are serving as governors of the LSE. Then, over the next eight weeks, at least for those of you who are enrolled here, we will run four workshops on the topics of vocation, creativity, balance, and purpose. You can sign up for these workshops through the Careers Hub on the LSE Internet. At least that's what I'm told, because I can't, because I'm not a student, so I can't actually check and see if it works. Um, there are still, I understand, a few places left. And the workshop materials we will try and make available on the LSE Life Moodle page. Don't ask me what that is. We'll close the series with an event on Monday the 28th of November at St. Paul's Cathedral on our working lives facing the future, chaired by the Reverend Canon Dr. James Walters, chaplain and senior lecturer in practice, who was just using his phone to take a picture. Oh. Um, <laughs> I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> Nava Ashraf, Professor of Economics and Director of Research at the Marshall Institute of, for Philanthropy and Social Entrepreneurship, also at the LSE, will be a speaker, as well as someone from Deloitte's on the future of automation, the head of diversity at EY, and Chris Steed, who has written on the quantification of human value and environments of value in an emerging future. So we also hope we'll have input from some of the students who have either attended tonight or will attend the workshops if you're interested in being involved in some of the commentary that goes around that event. The intention of the program is to consider what makes work meaningful and to give you some tangible help in thinking about this as you begin your own careers, as well as to consider how the working environment may change over the span of your careers. Now, before we begin, I am obliged to remind you that if the alarm rings, it is important, it is not a test, and we should leave the building. Um, I'd like you to turn your mobile phones to silent, but if you would like to tweet, we suggest you use the hashtag MeaningfulWork. We will be both recording and filming the event this evening, and both should become available shortly at both the LSE and the St. Paul's Institute websites. So now, housekeeping done, let us begin. <coughs> We're very fortunate to have as our first speaker, Professor Richard Sennett, who I believe helped create the LSE Cities program here and is also University Professor of the Humanities at New York University. His studies have focused on social ties in cities and the effect of urban living on individuals in the modern world. He's written a number of works ranging from academic pieces to apparently fictional pieces such as The Frog Who Dared to Croak, which I have to say I have not read. <laughs> he is, he I have is, to suppress that. <laughs> he has been a fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and of the Royal Society of Literature. He is also a founding director of the New York Institute for the Humanities. This year, he received the European Essay Prize awarded by the Charles Veillon Foundation in Lausanne. 
So with that, I have to confess I'm a complete fan of his book Together, about the rituals, pleasures, and politics of cooperation. After Professor Sennett speaks, I will ask both Ruth and Tim to make some introductory remarks about their own career trajectories. And after that, the four of us will have a bit of a discussion, and we want to leave lots of time for questions from you. Professor Sennett. Well, thank you. Is this, do I have to do anything? I don't think so. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, well, this is a wonderful uh, a series of events, and uh, I'm, I'm delighted to to get the ball rolling, as it were. I, um, a, as a researcher, I do uh, uh, both work on cities and on labor, and I've tried at various points to put these uh, two fo focuses full side together. I'm going to talk to you tonight about. I knew it was. There it is. Uh, it's just me. Uh, I'm going to talk to you tonight about labor. And this subject of meaningful work is something that I've been researching throughout my career. And what I want to present to you tonight is, uh, most of the, and most of the work I do is, qual is qualitative. I interview workers. And what I want to present to you tonight is just some thoughts on how uh, the issue of meaningful work has changed in the last uh, 40 years. And I, I thought the way maybe to do this is to describe to you a bakery in Boston, Massachusetts, which I've been following since, um, since 1976. God, I'm getting old. Um, this was a small family business that in 1976 was run mostly by a Greek uh, family in a community. Most of the workers in it uh, stayed um, for their lives in, in, or a good part of their lives, working in this bakery. They were long-term workers. They were part of the community. They gradually developed skills. They were worked up from being apprentices to master bakers. Uh, and the work was meaningful both in terms of increasing their skills and in terms of their relation with the larger community. Uh, about 20 years ago, and um, it was a very complex issue. It was also a very racist uh, bakery. They hired no blacks, no Latinos. Um, uh, women were only seen as fit to serve in the counter, uh, and never to become bakers themselves. So it was an old-fashioned, small, smallish business of employing about 80 people. About 20 years ago, uh, several things happened. Uh, the family took in partners, not from the local community, but through a, a, a bank, partners who were in Greece. Uh, the nature of baking changed uh, so that it became uh, automated machines. Uh, came into the bakery, and uh, many times those machines uh, replaced, uh, they came into the bakery because 
their, um, the cost of this machinery was falling as the, as the quality of the technology increased. And that meant that the machines could do things that the bakers themselves uh, didn't need to do anymore for if more cheaply. And finally, the personnel in the bakery began to shift. On the one hand, because of American laws about equality of opportunity in hiring, um, they were obliged to look outside the realm of black, uh, outside the realm of uh, Greeks. They began hiring blacks. They were obliged to do that, and Latinos. Uh, but the people they were hiring also worked there for a shorter, ever shorter period of, of time. Uh, the bakery became less a center, a focus of the community, and um, uh, more something uh, which was a job through which people passed through. <coughs> and I tell you the story of this bakery because it highlights three essential ways in which the workforce uh, not only in, in this particular city, but more generally, has uh, shifted in the last course of the last 20 years. The first is, obviously, that local, uh, a local enterprise is not something that's locally controlled. As here, the funding came from outside the country. Uh, many other medium and small businesses are increasingly uh, funded uh, externally to, um, to, to the communities. It was secondly, uh, it's symbolic, in that um, uh, the technological revolution, which has been undergoing, uh, uh, which has been happened there, has been happening more largely in the economy. Uh, for a long time, there was a trade-off in in the mechanization of labor between the cost of machinery and the cost of labor itself, and usually that meant that. Um, there was a kind of balance where uh, machines were, to, to make a robotic machine, tended on the long term to be more expensive than hiring cheap labor. That has now shifted. And it's, it's a very important issue. It's cheaper now to make a very complex piece of machinery, far cheaper than it was 20 years ago. This is what the, the revolution in technology has done to work, which means that we're finally at the stage now of truly having a revolution uh, via automation. Uh, this was a revolution in, in this particular thing of craftsmanship. But it's also true in the service sector as well. As any of you who have ever called an, um, a medium-sized business and got one of those ferociously intelligent robots uh, uh, answering the phone, or not answering what your particular question, but anyhow, yeah. it's the case. Uh, Voice-activated software, uh, there are whole protocols for replacing service work human service work with automated service work. 
And the third aspect of that is that, uh, of course, that the terms of work in the modern economy are shrinking in time. And this, to me, since we're talking about meaningful work, is, the, I would say, the most important of these three aspects. The effect on people's sense of meaningful work, of short-term work. Uh, I don't want to quote statistics at you, but uh, well, I do, actually. Um, <laughs> In 1976, if you were 40 years old in uh, a large American city, the chances were that you would work for two to three employers and that you'd held each of those jobs five to nine years. In 2015, for 40-year-olds in big American cities, the chances are that you work for more than 10 employers, and you work modally three to five years. Uh, in neoliberal thought, this is great. That is, you've had all this work experience. Uh, you've had all these opportunities, and you've moved from job to job. You've been mobile, just as, as you should be entrepreneurial and so on. In fact, this is a terrible crisis for workers about the meaning of work. It means, for instance, that long-term service in an organization is not required, is not uh, uh, recognized and uh, uh, acknowledged as something uh, as of value to the organization. Um, the Harvard Business School, I don't want to speak of our alma mater. The competition. <laughs> the competition. But uh, the Harvard Business School for a while uh, um, had professors of labor, two prof I'm not going to name them, professors of labor management who said if you see an employee with more than five years in the same job at the same place, that's an employee you don't promote. And what that means is that the organization expects you to have a low level of commitment to it and of loyalty. And for most people, that's a very important thing. The length of service, the notion that you're part of an organization, you're absorbed into it and recognized for having a, uh, been a, a part of that community at work is something that's very, very meaningful. And what is happening under the new conditions of work is uh, that the reverse um, is the case. Uh, experience is becoming a negative in many work situations rather than a positive. And that's a real, the older you become, it's also part of the whole emphasis on work on youth, rather. The older you become, the more experienced you become, people could think the more you're past it, you know, that you're set in your ways, and so on. For the people I was interviewing, um, not in, in the bakery, but, but elsewhere, in, in, both in Silicon Valley and uh, in the financial sector in New York, the notion that sort of the older you become, the less valuable you become in the modern economy is something that's terrifying 
It's a kind of the inverse relation between experience and value. There are economic reasons for that, which I don't want to go into about, about how pay structures get uh, organized in the labor force. But in terms of what we're talking about today, that is something that's quite, um, um, that's quite adversive. The other thing about that is uh, that what we are finding, uh, and this is not just my own work, but many of my, my colleagues, is that as people become more mobile in the labor force, the moves that they make are seen as additive rather than uh, narrative uh, in terms of their skills. That is, in the old style corporation, very hierarchical, you know, steps, they were worked out by unions. If you were a blue collar worker, they were worked out by by a different generation of Harvard labor analysts um, <laughs> who were our, our age. Um, there was an expectable path for moving up and down the work ladder. There was a narrative of work. And for blue collar workers, a lot of that had to do with increasing skills. That's how, that was the genius, for instance, of the, uh, the Ford Motor Company from its inception into the 70s. That people got, they got promoted by seniority, but they had to acquire new skills in the plant in order to rise up. Um, what's happened under these new conditions of work is that you're making lateral, more increasingly lateral moves. From doing something in one place, you move to another, uh, another city or another employer and do the same kind of work. And that kind of stasis of, uh, has, has replaced the notion that in time, work acquires more value. You're doing the same thing, but you're just changing from one place to the other. In the bakery that I described to you, those low-level workers who are attending the machines don't see themselves as having a work narrative. They see themselves as having a serial set of jobs in which their experience of work is not becoming more and more rich. So the combination of the devaluing of time and with it things like service, integration into a, into a, a corporation, and the flattening out of this narrative of work skills is creating, and I don't think this word is too strong, a kind of crisis of work 